Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. <laughs> That's right. Good morning. Hey, friends. Good to see you guys here. Oh, how you guys like that rain, that cold, constant up and down? I like it. I am actually allergic to the cold. I really am. You're right. I do. It's called cold uticaria. I break out in hives when I get exposure to uh, temperatures that are below my blood temperature. Let's keep talking about it. Yep, it's a real thing. Look it up. It's on Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> good morning. Uh, it's good to see you guys, uh, of course, as always. Um, if this is your first time with us, uh, this is a little church we have that was uh, started out a podcast three years ago. We are almost three years old. Um, my name is Andy. I am one of the pastors on staff, uh, the creative director here. Um, but uh, yeah, this is uh, a space where um, we do a number of different things. Uh, we have three primary um, ways of explaining what our experience is like in the room um, every single Sunday. Um, at the center of our service is Eucharist, in which we'll be taking um, later this morning. Uh, we see Eucharist as not only an ongoing um, uh, practice in which for those of us that have committed to faith in which we approach Jesus and consider the things that we um, either need to let go or need to engage uh, simultaneously or need to embody as a, a remembrance of who he is and how we can walk divinely um, in this world for a reconciliation. And if you've never taken it before, um, we see it also as a first opportunity and a first step into a life with him and walking with him and, and working that out in this great life of uh, process that we're all living in. Um, uh, second to that is that uh, as far as worship and what teaching is like for us, um, this is all for us. It's all about invitation and not coercion. Our our ultimate goal isn't to convince you of something that is ironclad about what life and faith is supposed to look like, but rather um, a way of inviting you into something. So whether um, you come from a tradition of church where you stand and worship and sing and express yourself, um, that is welcome. And if today is a day where, um, or all days where you like to sit in silence and process as music is played or where silence is offered, that is absolutely welcome too. Um, that's actually my kind of personal preference of choice. Like I've had some of my most um, probably compelling moments actually just sitting in space and silence and a little bit of solitude. And uh, we want these spaces to also embody that kind of thing. Um, and then lastly, um, today uh, we have our friend Will Anderson teaching, um, who is one of a few of our different teachers that we have. And so some of our teachers um, are a little bit different in, um, in how they hold some of their beliefs, but we ultimately all believe in Jesus. And so um, we have a little bit of a dynamic and uh, differences on uh, some doctrinal opinions, and we want to always offer that out for you guys to consider and how we weigh and, you know, kind of, again, like how do we process out these different things? Because there's so many good um, teachers and theologians and scholars that bring great arguments on both sides of not two, but many sides of the field of, of who God is and what Jesus actually looks like. And so our goal is that um, that we would make a space where Jesus can um, approach us uh, and that we can hear him clearly and see who he is. So um, it's a little bit about uh, what every Sunday uh, looks like for us. So uh, I have a few things um, that I need to talk about before we get going this morning. Um, boom. So today... 
We have uh, one of our ongoing workshops, which is uh, our spiritual practices workshop, and this one is about us reading scripture. And so this is actually an experience in which we talk about how reading scripture as a spiritual practice. So it's not this objective class on like, what is the Bible? Although that will be a part of it as we kind of step into that, but actually understanding how reading the Bible and reading scripture is a way of us practicing faith and, um, and diving a little bit deeper and understanding that. So that is a free workshop. They don't cost anything. Uh, if you haven't signed up for that, that's fine. Um, it's at 11.45. It takes place in the PE room all the way at the other side of the blacktop um, on campus there. So Ronnie will be uh, running that workshop. Uh, care workshop slide? Okay, no, next week we have our church and culture uh, workshop. So this is a new workshop we're doing that is, um, a, uh, it's a dialogue, it's a conversation. Our last one we did last month was on women in leadership. And so uh, that was a great conversation. There's about um, 35 people in the room and just kind of talking about where has the church gone wrong in this way? What can we do to correct it? How can we really talk about this? So um, spiritual abuse, um, obviously not a light topic, but um, we're gonna make some space to kind of uh, share and discuss A, what it looks like. Um, for some people they might really realize like, whoa, I didn't even realize I was under this kind of circumstance and that might be a bit illuminating, but ultimately we'll be looking to, to help you connect with some community pastors and, and move forward with, um, with what that process looks like. And on March 12th, we have uh, our care workshop. So we've been running um, these for about a year. Um, these take place actually over at Bridge Community Church in Orange. Um, they are taught by Carrie Garcia, who is uh, one of our teachers here. And uh, we're talking about silencing the lies of the inner voice. Long title. Um, but this is uh, this is a great uh, conversation when me and Carrie were working out how to really articulate what this is. Um, you know, when we talk about a spiritual life, um, and even for those kind of outside the spiritual life, we, we can acknowledge this inner voice, this subconscious voice that we listen to. We call it our conscious. And, um, but sometimes through our experiences, through PTSD, through other types of things we go through in life, those voices can change. Those voices can inform what society actually looks like. And we need to kind of like understand what is, how the truth of ourselves comes against that. Um, and what it looks like to make that whole again and to reconcile what um, what a, a healthy spiritual voice actually sounds like. Uh, the last two things um, that I'll say is, one, um, we do need a little bit more help on our setup team and teardown team uh, for Sunday morning. So um, if you're like the, pers the kind of person that likes to um, wake up early... <laughs> but actually help out, um, that would be of uh, great help to us. Uh, just shoot us an email at info at voxoc.com if you want to jump in and help. We can get you going on that. And then uh, secondly, um, I want to, uh, A, acknowledge that uh, our worship team and all the, all the musicians that play here um, give an outrageous amount of time to uh, committing to this. Uh, we are a small church. We're not a very big church. And so musicians, as it turns out, aren't always easy to find. <laughs> so um, if you do play and you want to um, audition with us, um, that is something that you can do. Uh, we'd love if you'd be interested in, in playing along with us. And so um, that is also an open invitation as well. And if you want to email us at info at voxoc.com as well, we'll pass that on to Izzy and she can get in contact uh, with you guys that way. Sound good? All right, we're going to do some worship and um, again, uh, getting into this stuff with, with worship kind of at the top of the morning, um, you know, some of this is just about posturing for us, just taking a moment to, um, to hear what uh, God might want to do this morning and um, so we just invite you guys into that and be willing to let God surprise you today. So, thanks. Good morning, guys. There are people here. Awesome. From backstage, I could only see this section. I was like, well, I'll be talking to myself. This will be nice. Uh, what do you guys think of the rain? Good? Bad? Boo? Who booed the rain? Southern California has been sort of transforming into what looked like the hills of Ireland 
It's so green right now. It's weird. All right. This morning we'll be in John chapter 6, so you can turn there. Uh, You can pull up John 6 in your app, or you can just prepare your eyes to stare at the screen, uh, whatever you prefer. Uh, This chapter is huge. It's 71 verses, and we'll be spending five minutes on each verse. I'm just kidding. Uh, No, we are looking at 13 verses this morning of the 71. So if you're a math person, what percentage would that be? Anybody? 18. Okay, I couldn't have done that either. Um, I don't say that to overwhelm you, but only to say, um, go read all of John 6 this week uh, because it's rich. There's so much in it. And today is really just sort of a, a flyover, an overview of, of the whole chapter. But uh, it's one of the most tense uh, moments in Jesus's ministry because at the end of the chapter, what happens is, a large number of disciples just up and walk away. They abandon and they say, we no longer want to follow Jesus. We want nothing to do with him. And in many ways, I think that's why this story in this chapter this morning really hits home for us is because we live in a time and in a culture where there's this mass exodus out of the church. And this chapter helps to shed light on why that happens. What is it that causes so many to leave? Now, of course, there's not just one answer, but this chapter gives us a lot to think about. So here's what I want to do. I just want to quickly walk you through the whole chapter since we don't have time to cover it and let you know what's been happening. And and again, go read it on your own. So it starts with one of Jesus's most famous miracles where he's teaching to thousands of people. It says 5,000, but that's just the men, so it could have been 10, 15,000, we don't know for sure. And they're hungry. They're out in the countryside. You guys know the story. Jesus miraculously uh, multiplies these loaves and fish, and he feeds thousands of people. They're amazed. They can't believe what has just happened. And so they decide... He is the prophet that is to come into the world. And they decide that they want to make him king by force. They're going to put him on the throne and make him their political leader. Jesus senses that this is their desire and their goal. And so he slips away. How do you slip away from thousands of people? I have no idea. Jesus tends to do this often where he's just gone. And so from here, the crowd starts looking for him um, a bit frantically, honestly. And uh, finally, the moment comes where they find him again. And we'll, we'll look at how they find him. But they come face to face and Jesus starts saying things to the crowd. There's this back and forth dialogue between Jesus and this crowd that's been trying to find him. And Jesus makes it very clear that he is not who they want him to be or who they think he is and that their expectations for him are not actually what he's come to do and it all sort of escalates. And so I'm going to take you to the end of the chapter and here's sort of the final moment. So we're going to be in verse 66. It'll be on the screen if you don't have it. It says this, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So you have this conflicted picture. You have the fierce loyalty of the disciples on one hand, and on the other, you have these deserters who walk away and want nothing to do with it. And what drives both of these reactions, both to stay with Jesus and to walk away from him, are his words. The things that Jesus uh, is saying either drive people away or draw them in. And even Peter says, Lord, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. So this morning is really, it's a case study in the words of Jesus and the effects that his words have. Um, Here's what's interesting. In the same gospel of John, uh, he gives us a purpose statement in chapter 20, verse 31. Here's what he says. This is his thesis statement for this whole gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John is saying, these words that I've written down are not just informational, they're transformational. They're they're supposed to create a response in you. And this is the powerful and sometimes polarizing effect that God's word has. Not just the words in the gospels, but but Genesis through Revelation, the Bible, the scriptures, whatever title you want to use. Uh, These words were never meant to just reach our ears, but they were meant to rearrange our hearts. And so this whole thing in John 6, where Jesus speaks, and you can see this sort of catalytic um, effect going out. And some stay with him and some walk away. And again, this speaks so directly to what we see today in the church and outside of the church and how people think about the scriptures. So there's just two things we're going to look at. The whole focus this morning is Jesus' words, his words. And the two things we're going to look at are how his words reveal our motives towards him and how his words also reveal his motives towards us. So let's look at the first, how Jesus' words show our motives towards him. And we're going to jump back into the story, verse uh, 24. So let's look at that. Um, Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, meaning the feeding of the 5,000, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So this moment happens where they finally find Jesus again. They climb aboard boats and they send out the search party. And when they finally come face to face with him once more, the first response Jesus has is, you're here for the wrong reason. And he immediately starts to sift their motives. He starts to uncover the why behind why they've sought him out. And this is actually a little bit surprising because on the surface, it seems like the crowd is devoted. They're, they're literally uh, searching over land and sea 
to find him. They're taking initiative. They're, they're looking for him. They're seeking him. They're exerting effort to find him. And yet, uh, Jesus says, you're here for the wrong reason. And he says, as Jesus often does, he's able to see through to their motives. And he says, you're seeking me not because you believe in me, but because of the benefits you think that I can offer you. You're not here out of belief. You're here for benefits. You're here for bread. I, I multiplied the loaves and the fish and you filled your stomachs and that's what's driven you here. See, what Jesus is pointing out is there's this materialism that has been driving them the whole time to find him. They've tasted food. No doubt some of them struggled to survive didn't always know where their next meal was going to come from, so they're seeking him out for what he can offer. And Jesus says, uh, I want you to, to come after me, not just for the benefits, but because you really believe in who I am. And maybe we struggle a bit in Orange County, the uh, wealthiest section, or one of the wealthiest sections of arguably the wealthiest nation in, in all of the world, most of us here probably don't have to worry too much about where our next meal is coming from. But this same materialism that, that's driving the crowd here does exist for us. It's called the health and wealth gospel. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's Jesus, if I pray to you, if I check the right religious boxes, you will bless me with a big house, an amazing family, uh, a big paycheck, good health, Okay, this is the Joel Osteen territory kind of stuff. And that's certainly alive and well today, but I would say just as we can come to Jesus for physical benefits without really wanting him, we can also, there's a spiritual materialism that pervades that maybe is a little more tempting for us in America, at least certain circles of us. And so spiritual materialism is the same thing. It's it's seeking Jesus for the benefits he offers, but not out of belief in him. And so maybe we come to Jesus because it delivers this religious experience, this feeling that we get, this spiritual vibe that we love to experience, but it has nothing to do with him. Maybe it looks like um, coming to Jesus out of guilt, feeling like maybe you were raised in a tradition where you, you have to go to church, you, you have to seek him, otherwise you're not cutting it. And so that release of, of, of guilt drives you to him, but not actually him himself. Um, for some of us, Jesus, we're, we're not as interested in who he actually is, what he said, but we want to be near him as a sort of this divine stamp of approval on whatever we think and feel and, and to sort of put authority behind the way we want to live. We'll, we'll stamp Jesus on it and say, yeah, he's behind this. He's on my team. And you see, this is all very sort of hidden and it, it can be hard to see. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, I don't know if you know that name, but he says this, talking about how we come to Jesus with hidden motives that maybe we're not even aware of. He says, this is actually what has happened in popular evangelicalism. Our, quote, Jesus is actually a reflection of ourselves. This is the constant danger when we don't simply open the scriptures and listen to their testimony about Jesus. 
We make Jesus into our own image, usually domesticated. Any Jesus who isn't both Savior and Lord, sacrificial Lamb of God and reigning King, cannot be the Jesus of the Gospels. And any Jesus who does not call us to radical, sacrificial, and yes, painful discipleship cannot be the real Jesus. And again, if this is us, it's easy to be blind to the fact that we're doing this. I think one of the most important words that Ferguson uses in the quote I just read to you is the word we. We. It's easy to say, oh yes, there's plenty of people that distort who Jesus is, who turn him into something he's not, who make him into their own image, but that's not me. And, and Ferguson has the, um, the humility to say we. It's something that we all do. It's something that we are all tempted to fall into. Um, and so this is one thing that Jesus' words do. They start to show us the, the, the ulterior motives that we approach him with. They bring them to the surface, just like the crowd comes and they're intent on getting bread from Jesus and he starts to just sift their motives and bring things to the surface. This is what God's word does. It exposes motives in us that we would not be able to see ourselves. And so uh, Hebrews 4.12, this will probably sound familiar to you, but it talks about the exposing nature of Jesus's words. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so when we come to the scriptures, they will sting us. Sometimes they will cut us open. And when that happens, there's two ways to respond in unbelief or in belief. That's what John 6 shows us. That's the difference between Peter who says, where else could I go? You are all I have. Your words are all I have. The difference between that and walking away. And scripture is, is like a good surgeon. It, it doesn't cut us open merely to hurt us, but it, it, it cuts us open in order to remove what is killing us. And this would all be horrible news if it stopped here. And if all the, the, the words of Jesus did were exposed and cut open and wound, um, but there's an, a healing aspect, which brings us to point number two. Jesus' words reveal his heart toward us. So not only does, do the scriptures show sometimes our motives towards God that maybe we're not even aware of, but they remind us of his motives toward us. Um, so let's talk about Jesus's words. Let's go to Matthew 12. Um, Jesus says this about the power of words. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How's that for a, a title? Um, how can you who are evil say anything good? Here's the key. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, your words reflect what is inside you. Whether you're aware of it or not, what comes out of your mouth mirrors what is happening in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. If that's true of human beings, then how much more do the words of God himself, how much more do the words of Jesus show us his heart? And so as we look at how the word of God reveals his heart for us, 
Um, listen for his heart as you hear what he says. I'm just going to run us through a couple points in John 6. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus says this, and we've read this already, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus says, I'm happy to satisfy your physical hunger, to give you bread. I mean, he feeds probably 10,000 people, but Jesus says, I'm not content to stop there because there's a deeper need that some of you aren't even aware of. I want to to meet that deeper spiritual need, prevent that spiritual starvation from happening. That's the heart of Jesus. And that's why he also says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now we hear these phrases probably often if you've grown up in church, and so it's easy to kind of tune out, but, but hear that. What Jesus is saying is, I want to satisfy you. I see the restlessness in your soul. I see how you are consuming things that will never fill you on a spiritual level, how you are gasping for air spiritually. I want to satisfy you so that you can rest, so that you can have life, so that the death and decay in your soul stops. That's his heart. That's what he wants for us. That's his motive. When he speaks, if it stings, it's, to, it's so that we can come to a place of healing. Jesus also says, let's continue to just uh, uncover and, and bring into focus Jesus' heart through his word. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Will live forever. What is Jesus revealing to us here? He's saying, I've come because the greatest enemy of humanity, the thing that most people fear, the thing that nobody can prevent, that endlessly uh, ticking clock that leads to the end of, of physical life, death itself, I have come to undo that. I've come to give you life so that you do not have to fear that anymore. Um, one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus conquering death for us, I read a couple months ago in a book by George Ladd, who was a professor at Fuller in Pasadena, and he wrote a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom, and listen to his description of how Jesus puts an end to death. He says this, everywhere one goes, he finds the gaping grave swallowing up the dying Tears of loss, separation, of final departure stain every face. Every table, sooner or later, has an empty chair. Every fireside has its vacant place. Death is the great leveler. Wealth or poverty, fame or oblivion, power or futility, success, failure, race, creed or culture, all our human distinctions mean nothing before the ultimate irresistible sweep of death. Apart from the gospel, death is the mighty conqueror before whom we are all helpless. We can only beat our fists in utter futility against the unyielding and unresponding tomb. But the good news is this, death has been defeated. Our conqueror has been conquered. In the face of the power of Christ, death was helpless. It could not hold him. Death has been defeated. Life and immortality have been brought to light. That's what Jesus wants to bring to you 
and to me. And the next part of verse 51 tells us how he defeated death. So let's look at that same verse 51. He goes on to say this, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And so Jesus overcomes death by letting death overcome him. So what could we say about Jesus's words and about his motives towards us? That they are unquestionably good. That his words are to, are to reveal the depth of his love for us. So why does the crowd walk away? If the news is that good and the hope is that glorious, why do they abandon him? Why do they get up and leave? Why do so many stop following him? What ultimately sets them off as the tension builds through this chapter, sort of the, the final straw for these uh, crowds of people is when Jesus says this, when he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay, that's a showstopper right there. Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and you have to drink my blood. Now for uh, a, a normal Jew, Okay, the, the Levitical law in the Old Testament forbid even eating the meat of an animal that still had blood in it. And here Jesus is saying, drink my blood. Now, we know he's not promoting cannibalism. Okay, he's pointing ahead to not only his sacrifice, but he's pointing to communion and the table and when what it means to accept that sacrifice in the, in the symbolism of accepting that sacrifice, but it's absolutely offensive to them. And I would say this talk of blood and flesh is equally offensive to us for a different reason. You see, if our motives towards God are so bad that someone had to spill their blood to pay for those motives, in that level of darkness, that's absolutely offensive to us. We'd rather deny uh, our brokenness than face it. We'd rather be self-sufficient than needy towards God. We'd rather seek Jesus for advice, not salvation, right? American sort of independence, I'm self-sufficient, I can provide for myself. Uh, We'd rather have a Jesus that doesn't confront us but always agrees with us. And just reading the Gospels half awake, you'll, you'll see that's impossible. How often does Jesus have to correct and redirect his disciples? How often does he have to pull them gently back and say, guys, you're, you're completely missing it. So it will be for us. And here's the problem. When we deny the offensiveness of our condition before God, then the only option left to us is to make God himself offensive that he's making much ado about nothing. If our view of ourselves is that how we're not that bad, what's the big deal? Then suddenly God starts to look needlessly vengeful and nitpicky and overly angry. And our view of him changes. And so the words of Jesus remind us of two things, the depth of our brokenness on one hand and the depth of Christ's love on the other. And living in the words of Jesus means holding both of those at the same time and saying, I refuse to let go of either one. I refuse to think 
that my goodness is more than it actually is, and I refuse to believe that God's goodness is less than what it actually is. And there in that tension is the gospel. If you sacrifice one or the other, uh, you are no longer listening to Jesus in his words. One author put it like this. The gospel comes in two movements. It first says, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but then quickly follows with, I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. And our struggle and our tension is not believing one of those or both of those truths. So have you discovered how Jesus' words can wound you but also heal you? Is that something that you regularly experience? When was the last time you sensed Jesus correcting you, rebuking you? What healthy relationship do you know where there is not disagreement? Where you don't have to readjust something in your heart? If that's non-existent in our relationships with Jesus, do we actually know him? Are we actually with him? Are we actually listening to him? How do we even know? How would we have the first idea if and when Jesus is redirecting us or correcting us? And this is why, for centuries, Christians have held tightly to the scriptures. They are like an anchor for our drifting hearts. They bring us back to center. They remove the distractions and the cloudiness, and we can actually hear Jesus again right from his lips, not secondhand, not from someone standing on a stage, but when we come to the words of Scripture, we hear from him. And like Peter says, where else could we go? Where else could we find direction? Where else uh, can we see the gospel clearly? Um, so we're going to get super practical. I know it's not especially cool to do this. Uh, we like to be ethereal. And, um, but what use is any of this if it, if it doesn't make any difference in everyday life? So, so what does it look like to remind ourselves and to check our motives towards God and to drink in and rehearse to ourselves his motives towards us? To remember both our brokenness in all its ugliness and God's grace in all of its glory. How do we do that? I think it looks like this, plain and simple. Read the Bible every day. I think that's what it looks like. Every day to be in these words. And immediately, I think some would say, that's legalistic. You're, you're creating spirituality and, and you're turning it into this religious formula. And look, I know plenty of people that they have their quiet time and their devotions every morning and they are one of the most unloving people I've ever met. And so how can you say, read the Bible every day? Um, here's why I would say it is because anything good can be done for bad reasons. Anything good can be done from a, a wrong motive or from the wrong place. Uh, with a wrong mindset, but that doesn't mean that there's no right way to do the right things. So as an example, this won't be hard to imagine in Orange County. Imagine there's someone who decides that their physical appearance means everything to them. So they start to work out seven days a week for hours at a time. They get the body that they want, and as a result, they become completely arrogant, 
right? They're posting obnoxious things on, on the internet. They're announcing to the world how much weight they've lost or the uh, diameter of their biceps, right? Everyone's just sick of it. Would we then conclude that working out is a bad thing? That no one should ever work out because of how that person is, is doing it? Of course not. To be healthy, you have to work out. There's no getting around that. But it's learning to work out for the right reasons and in the right way. And that's the difference. So don't short circuit the words of life Jesus has for you that he's preserved for you because of how it's been done poorly. Um, Another thing that we hear often is, but the Bible has been used in abusive ways, maybe even to, to some of you here or to others, or if you just look at the wide swath of human history, um, here's where I draw comfort in that uh, question is, in Jesus' day, as he walked around and as he interacted with the religious leaders of his time, there was incredible spiritual abuse in a general sense, but specifically the scriptures God's word was used in a way that was oppressive and laid burdens on people's shoulders. In fact, Jesus himself said, Pharisees, you lay burdens on the shoulders of the people that you yourselves are not willing to bear. And that's wrong. So Jesus at the same time condemns this idea of spiritual abuse through his word and at the same time was fiercely committed to it And some people say, well, can I just love Jesus without the Bible? I I, want to follow him. I'm about him. But I don't really know what to do with the Bible. Why can't I follow him without the scriptures? And that's an honest question. And a couple things to think about. Jesus borrowed from the Old Testament constantly. When you read through his words, he lived and breathed it. There was hardly anything he said that didn't come directly out of the Old Testament. He saw his life as the fulfillment of it. In Luke 24, he tells his disciples that all of the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole scriptures are about him and point to him. And so the irony of saying, I want Jesus but not the Bible, is you're then saying that you want nothing of what Jesus saw his own life being about. Not only that, but there is one source and one source alone where we know anything about Jesus. There's only one place we can get his teachings, one place, and that's in the scriptures. And so I think it would be more honest to reject both Jesus and the scriptures and say because he stood for them and I don't agree with the scriptures, then I'm going to walk away from all of it. I think that would be more uh, honest, uh, more accurate than to say, I want Jesus, but not the words that he speaks. Because like he says, out of the overflow of his heart, this is what we get. With all the thorny issues, with all the unanswered questions we have, this is it. And so, I don't know how this lands in your heart and in your mind. I realize I'm swimming upstream here a little bit in in the cultural current. Um, What gives me boldness to to stand here and say these kinds of things is largely not my theology of scripture. It's not words like inerrancy or infallibility. 
It's life experience. It's that when I come to Jesus' words, I, I find increasingly that they describe life as it really is. And if there's some sort of dissonance between what the scriptures say and what I'm feeling or experiencing, it's usually because I have my head in the sand. And you may disagree with that. That's okay. I'm just here to tell you um, sort of my take on this. But I do want to give you a couple more um, thoughts and then uh, some practical uh, suggestions of resources as we think about uh, Jesus' words. So there's a chart I want to throw up here for you guys. Um, These are different ways of approaching the Bible. And so... The right and the left column are sort of extremes, unhealthy extremes that we uh, can approach the Bible with. And so let's start on the left. Okay, what I would call blinding shallowness. The posture of this approach to the Bible says, don't ask any questions. To question anything about the scriptures is sinful. So just keep your head down, just read, just accept it and, and move along. And practically, what this ends up looking like is you have your quiet time, you read regularly, but you're doing so out of a dry sense of duty and obligation, maybe even guilt, as in if I don't meet my quota for the day, then I've let God down. On the far right side, um, I just label it blinding skepticism. Okay, this approach, the posture is that the Bible is outdated, it's obsolete, it's out of touch, and therefore it cannot address modern questions. And so instead of turning to what is viewed as an obsolete book for answers, you turn to the self, you turn to culture, uh, you turn to whatever it is um, that that you would deem uh, more reliable. Um, And where this leads practically is... There's no reason to read the words of Jesus regularly because um, you see history uh, as having moved on. And if you're in one of those two places, I would just invite you to look at the center column for a second, which I just labeled honest trust. The posture of this approach says the Bible welcomes your questions because the Bible is full of good questions. Lord, why so long? Why have you waited to bring justice? My God, why have you forsaken me? It's loaded with questions that connect to the human experience. It's also filled with hope that helps us see through the human experience. And practically where it leads is once again to regular reading, but unlike the left-hand column, if we can keep that up there, Unlike the left-hand column, you're no longer reading regularly out of obligation, out of coercion, out of guilt, but out of response to Christ's love and as a way to receive his love. And I know some of us probably want to be there, but you've tried and it's hard and it's confusing and you don't really know where to start. And this is an ancient book. So a lot of times you'll hear, you know, read the Bible. No, we can acknowledge that there is work to be done. There's effort to be put into this. It's a lifelong process of of learning how to do this. Um, So I'm going to just run through a couple things, just practically. If you don't get these now, um, 
even right as service ends, you can go on the Facebook. You can uh, listen again to get these resources. We might even post them on the um, the website. Uh, but a couple of things. Number one, Ronnie is doing a, uh, a workshop today on how to read the scriptures. He's going to focus more on some um, ancient methods, sort of meditative type things. Okay, here's a couple of things that have helped me. Um, resources that I would recommend to you. Okay, one is a, a study Bible. So I have a specific one I would recommend. It's the Zondervan NIV study Bible edited by D.A. Carson. Here's what you'll find in it. Every text of scripture is going to have explanatory notes for you so that when things are confusing, when you feel kind of lost, you can scan right down, read what some of the best scholars have written in an accessible way. Every book of the Bible has an introduction in it that will tell you the structure of the book, some of the background issues of the book, the major themes, how it's put together, what's unique about it. It's going to give you all this information that if you're just sitting down to read it on your own, you wouldn't have. That's a great resource. Um, I'll start with the ones you have to read, okay? And I got some stuff for those of you who don't like to read, so sit tight. Um, there's another book called uh, Understanding Your Bible in 15 Minutes a Day. Um, the idea is that every chapter takes 15 minutes to read. In my experience, it's more like five minutes a chapter. Uh, it's written by a guy named Daryl Aaron, and it's an introduction to the scriptures that's very helpful. It takes you through all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, asks some big questions like, are, are the scriptures trustworthy? Where do they come from? Um, how do I read them? All, every question you could uh, ask. There's like 40 questions in there that it goes through. Um, okay, for you non-readers, uh, learn to read. <laughs> But uh, the Bible Project is a website that creates animated videos on every book of the Bible. I use this all the time, and I'll tell you how I use it. Um, so first of all, there's videos on every book of the Bible. So there's that. Uh, so every time I'm going to read a book of the Bible, um, at least if I'm going systematically, I'll watch the video first. And once again, it just shows you visually, which is helpful for some of us. It shows you who the author is, what was the situation. You can actually visualize the structure of the book, what the main themes are. And then it'll even give you tips for reading like, hey, keep an eye out for this. Immensely helpful resource. Not only do they do books of the Bible, but they'll do major themes. So they'll take you from Genesis through Revelation and show you how a theme travels all the way through the Bible. They will take important words, uh, often Christianese words that we don't even think about, like love and sin and um, I forget what all of, they've done a ton of them, peace, joy, hope, uh, and they will offer really helpful insights. They will breathe new life into how you read the scriptures. Last thing, these are very practical. I, I realize that. Uh, the last thing is the scriptures were never meant to be consumed by yourself alone. So sometimes, that was sort of a confusing sentence. Sometimes we read alone and it's great. What I'm saying is that's not the only way we were intended to read the scriptures. And so here's what I think the crowd got right in John 6. They took initiative. They took a step towards Jesus. Um, I think there's nothing as helpful as doing that um, arm in arm with another person and, and finding someone that you know and trust and saying, 
I don't know how to come to this by myself and I need help. Could we meet once a week, every two weeks? And could we just do it together? I've talked with some of you here. It's beautiful who in your time at Vox have begun to do this. And it, it's amazing. We talk about deconstruction and reconstruction here. There comes a time for all of us when this hour a week is not enough. That we were meant to, to be with Jesus and to hear from Jesus throughout the week daily. And some of you have taken those steps and it's incredible and I just encourage and bless those of you who have done that. And I certainly do not shame or, or guilt those who have not taken that step. Um, I would just say, in the words of Peter, Jesus alone has the words of eternal life and they're available to you. Um, I heard a story, I think it was the Associated Press covered this, where it was in the country of Guinea in Africa, where there's an airport where huge groups of college students would gather. And what they realized is that the, the students were gathering there because it was one of the few places with reliable electricity and the lights lining the airport created enough light for the students to study. And so students would walk, uh, I think they said as far as an hour to get to this airport. They would try to get there early and get a good spot. There were only so many lights, but they would travel from all over the villages to get to the one place where there was enough illumination through the darkness to where they could read and study and grow and, and, and get what they needed to. And, and that is the image of John chapter 6, that while so many walk out back into the darkness and say, this light hurts our eyes, we don't like it, we don't want it, there are those faithful disciples that say, Lord, where else could we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. There's a fierce tenacious loyalty to his words. They refuse, even though they don't understand either what Jesus said about his body and his blood, they refuse to leave. This image of where else can we get this kind of beautiful light in a world of darkness? Where else could we go? So that's a lot to process. And um, one thing I forgot to say is that I would like to offer myself, I, <laughs> I do not have many answers, uh, but I do love reading the scriptures. And if you have no one to go to that you know, uh, that would be willing to read with you, then I make myself available. Um, I can do it over the phone. I can do it uh, through Skype. I'm just, I want to make myself available to you, and I would not announce it to a group this size if I didn't mean it. And so if you need someone or want someone to do that with you, um, I make myself available to you. Um, we're going to come to the table in, in a second. And uh, let me take us back to Jesus's words about his body and his blood. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And so, to his body and to his blood, broken and shed for us, um, I invite you to come. And I I invite you, um, as you do, to just allow Jesus, through his word that we've heard this morning, to sift you. That if it did cut a little bit or sting a little bit, it's okay. It's not the hand of, of a careless surgeon, it's the hand of a, of a loving God who maybe is, is pulling you a little bit closer to himself and saying, I, I want you to hear from me even more than you have been. I wanna show you how to understand my word. I, I wanna show you that in these pages is something that maybe you've been afraid to see or reluctant to see. Um, but as we come to the table, just allow those questions uh, to circulate and see what God might have to speak to you. Uh, let me pray over you. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you are honest enough with us to show us who we really are. God, in that your overwhelming grace then says there is forgiveness, there is eternal life, there is satisfaction for your soul. God, we're, we're broken to the point that you had to die for us, Lord, but you loved us so much that you were glad to do that for us. God, and in the, in the depths of that kind of love, we want to come to your words. Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. Lord, I pray over Vox. Lord, what a precious community of people Lord, that it's such an honor to be a part of. And Lord, I pray that you would stir up the hearts, Lord, that long to listen, that long to hear more, but haven't known how to go about it. God, give them boldness and and give them courage. Lord, may they never see reading your word as some sort of spiritual uh, checklist. Lord, we can only understand your words through your spirit. Lord, you have to open our eyes. So God, it's not up to us being professional readers, scholars. Lord, it's you who gives understanding. All we have to do is ask. Come come to you, Lord, and, and you speak to us. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for shedding your body. Lord, for spilling your blood on our behalf. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Hello, Vox. Uh, So good to have you guys. I wanted to uh, let you know a few things before we head out. If you uh, are in need of prayer, uh, we have our community pastors, Bruce and Carol. Why don't you guys wave? If you guys want to hang out, they'll pray for you. They'll talk with you. Um, If you want to write your prayer down, we have these uh, beautiful walls here um, that you can write your prayer requests and we'll pray for them during the week. Um, That's one way that you can get uh, connected through through this. But also, um, 
If you'd like to serve with Fox, we have opportunities for you to serve with your time. And uh, we also have these boxes at the door if you would like to contribute financially to Vox. We would greatly appreciate that allows us to be here. But um, really quick, uh, Ronnie, uh, the seminar with Ronnie is right after at 11.45 in the PE rooms. There's a It says physical education if you want to make your way there. But uh, we'd love to see you there. And then we have um, a seminar next week and then Vox PM. Don't forget about that. Um, our last, last Vox PM was quite amazing. We uh, planned for 120, 150 plus people showed up. We ran out of food twice, <laughs> which was awesome. But uh, we just saw a lot of people connecting. There was a family who hasn't gone to church in a year and tried out Vox PM and uh, really got to connect with some amazing people. So thank you guys for contributing financially so that we can do those things, but also for being there for other people to connect and to allow them to feel part of part of a family. So thank you for that. Um, if you would like, Will and Emily are going to be out in the lobby. If you guys want to give them a big hug, this is our last week with us as they're going to move to Austin on Saturday. Uh, we're going to miss them, but feel free to uh, love on them in the lobby. Give them a big hug, high five, thank them. Uh, we'll, we love them very, very much. So would you stand? I would love to bless you before you go. Um, pray over you as you head out today. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. And may the Lord let his face shine upon you. Thank you so much and have a great day, guys. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.